all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, Star Wars buddies. It's your friendly host, Kyle, and you have tuned in to the Galaxy's Hidden Gem, Star Wars Audio Archives. And today we are zooming into part six of Annihilation. Curious about the thrills and chills awaiting us? There's only one way to unravel this mystery, and that's to dive into the story. Got your favorite drink and your lightsaber close by? Safety's no joke in outer space. All right, enough with the chit-chat. Let's blast into the action. In keeping with his cover as a wealthy industrialist, Nostaral had rented them a two-bedroom suite on Zyost that was the height of luxury and comfort, nearly twice the size of Theron's apartment on Coruscant. It had taken a good hour to thoroughly sweep the place for bugs and recording devices. The bed in Theron's room was the most comfortable one he'd ever had the pleasure of sleeping in, but he was never able to get more than a few hours' rest while on a mission. By the time Nostaral emerged from his own quarters, Theron was already hunched over the counter of the breakfast nook, studying the information on the datapad Vin had given him. You're up early. I've been thinking about the mission, Theron said, eyes on the screen. I think we need more than a simple bombing to distract the Empire from what we're really up to. For this feint to work, we need to rattle their cage, give them something to really worry about. The Jedi took a seat in a chair across from Theron. Sounds like you already have something in mind. We need to make this look like a failed assassination attempt on the Minister of Logistics, Theron said, finally looking up from the datapad. Convince the Empire that the cipher was damaged accidentally when the assassins were discovered trying to set up explosives in the Minister's office. That would certainly give them something else to focus on. So how do we pull it off? I break into the Minister's office and switch the cipher course. Then I start setting up explosives under his desk. You send an anonymous tip to the Imperials about what's happening so that they charge in and catch me in the act. The explosives go off accidentally during my escape, and they think the blast caused the Cypher's self-destruct sequence to trigger. The second I tip the Imperials off, every guard in that place will be swarming that office from all directions. You won't have a chance. Not necessarily. I've been looking over the security plans. The Orbital Defense Command Center's primary function is to guard against a Republic fleet attacking Zyost. Their biggest fear is that an enemy force will take over the station during a full-scale planetary invasion. Because of that, they have an emergency lockdown state that automatically triggers if certain protocols are met that indicate a possible Republic invasion. During lockdown, every floor on the building goes into quarantine to restrict movement of any enemy troops that might have infiltrated the facility. Every door and lift in the place is locked and disabled. And the Empire's so worried about being betrayed from within, even the Imperial soldiers inside the building can't open them. There's no way to override the lockdown until a special emergency response unit has swept the building and verified it's clear of hostiles. How are we supposed to simulate a Republic invasion of Zyost? What's the first thing any fleet does when it's trying to put troops on the ground in a heavily defended enemy city? Knock out the power. Nostaral replied after a moment's consideration. Leave your enemy fumbling around in the dark. Exactly. If there's a citywide blackout, the ODCC's auxiliary generators kick in to keep the place running, and the whole facility goes into lockdown automatically. Even after you tip off the Empire that there's an assassin in the Minister's office, they won't be able to send reinforcements in my direction until they restore primary power or the emergency response team finishes its sweep. If we hit them at night, when the minister and his staff aren't working, that floor will only have a handful of guards patrolling it. Nothing I can't handle. If the whole place is locked down, then how are you going to get out? The emergency response team can still use the doors and turbo lifts during lockdown. All it takes is an ID badge and a matching retinal scan from one of their officers. Do you think Vin could get his hands on something like that? Maybe. But he already knows more than I like. Give him too many pieces and he might put the whole puzzle together. You think he'll betray us? Probably not, but I'd rather not take any chances. The ZLF has its own agenda. 
and I don't want it getting mixed up in Operation Endgame any more than absolutely necessary. So how are you going to get the badge and retinal scan? Don't worry, Theron assured him. I've got it covered. From a table in the back corner of the bar, Theron watched his target closely as he tossed back another drink with his fellow soldiers. The hammer and nail was located only a few blocks from the Orbital Defense Command Center, making it a popular hangout for the troops stationed there. It was easy to spot them in the crowd, as they tended to wear their uniforms even when off-duty, particularly the officers. The Empire was a martial society, and there were status and perks given to those of higher rank. The waitress made more frequent trips to tables where the officers gathered. The bartender filled their glasses right to the rim. He'd even seen a handful of civilian patrons and enlisted troops surrender their tables if there weren't empty seats when the officers entered. Though the manner in which they slinked away made it seem more like fear than a sign of respect. Theron had set his sights on a man named Captain Presick, commander of one of the ODCC's emergency response teams. Tall, blonde, and handsome, the broad-shouldered officer carried himself with the privileged air of someone who had grown up being taught he was better than everyone else. Even among the other members of his elite unit, he carried himself with an air of arrogance and superiority. Theron's investigations had uncovered Presick's reputation for being a hard drinker when he wasn't on duty. And when he got drunk, he got violent. Though he was smart enough to pick his fights with civilians to avoid any consequences that might harm his military career. Presick's shift had ended several hours ago. Since then, he had been here at the bar, drinking with a handful of other officers. But while most of them nursed glasses of wine or ale, he was tossing back white Nova doubles with reckless abandon. Not that they're minded. The more Presick drank, the easier this would be. He said something to the others at his table, eliciting a round of ribald laughter. Then he got up and made his way toward the refresher. Theron moved quickly to cut him off, walking with a pronounced drunken stagger. He bumped into the soldier as they both tried to enter the refresher at the same time, using the contact to get in close enough for the scanner in his pocket to read the data encoded on the ID badge prominently displayed on the left breast pocket of Presick's uniform. Sorry, Theron grumbled. What's where you're going? The man snapped, roughly shoving Theron back with his shoulder and forearm. Might if I go first? Theron asked, taking a step toward the refresher, stalling to give the scanner the 30 seconds it would take to download the data from Presick's badge. Kind of an emergency. <laughs> The soldier didn't reply as he squeezed past Theron and into the refresher, the door whooshing shut behind him. Theron remained standing just outside the door, considering his options. He knew the scanner hadn't had enough time to finish the job, and the hollow recorder in the implant of his left eye hadn't captured a clear enough shot of Presick's face to duplicate his retinal scan. He had no choice but to try again. The refresher opened a few moments later, and Presick stepped out, giving Theron a dangerous glare when he saw him still waiting by the door. What's your problem, subjugate? He said, using the imperial term for those without citizen status. The implication in the word was clear. Here on Zyost, you have no rank. You have no rights. Back down. I was here first, Theron said slurring his words and leaning forward as if he were having trouble keeping his balance. You have the line! From the corner of his eye, Theron noticed the patrons at the nearby tables scooping up their drinks and rapidly retreating to a safe distance. Presick's lip curled up into a snarl of contempt as he fixed his piercing blue eyes on the maggot in front of him. Perfect, Theron thought. Give me a nice, clear shot of those pretty little peepers. To Theron's surprise, Presick turned away after a few seconds. Sit down, subjugate, he said. Theron wasn't sure why Presick was backing down. Maybe he'd seen something in Theron's eyes that made him realize this wasn't the typical cowering victim he was used to bullying. 
Maybe his superiors, fed up with his off-duty altercations, had taken him to task and warned him to keep his temper in check. One thing Darren was sure about, however, he still needed more time for the scanner to do its job. You're the subject race, Theron spat out, fumbling over the word in his feigned drunken stupor. He reached out and shoved Presick in the back as he walked away. Presick wheeled on him, his right hand balled into a fist. He dropped low as he threw a powerful uppercut into Theron's midsection. Theron saw it coming. It was a clumsy brawler's punch, but he resisted his natural instincts to block or evade the attack. Staying in character as an inebriated civilian, all he could do was brace himself as the blow landed. The air whooshed out of him, and his knees buckled. He staggered forward and wrapped his arms around Presick in a bear hug, using the other man to support his weight so he could stay on his feet, and to keep him from stepping back and out of the scanner's limited range. Get off me! Presick shouted, struggling to shake him off. Theron grappled awkwardly with the bigger man, managing to tie up his arms and buying himself a brief respite from further punishment. The other officers rushed in from the far side of the bar to join the fray. Just a few more seconds, Theron thought, still holding on to Presick for all he was worth. He felt the hands of the other soldiers seizing him as they tried to pry him loose from their friend. Someone was raining blows down on his neck and shoulders from behind. Four on one, Theron thought, as he twisted and turned, doing his best to absorb the beating. The kind of odds the Empire just loves. They managed to haul Theron off Presick just as he felt the scanner in his pocket vibrating to signify the download was complete. As Presick stumbled backward, Theron went limp and collapsed to the floor. Get him on his feet, Presick shouted and two of his companions grabbed Theron under his armpits and yanked him to his feet. And now the big finale, Theron thought, as Presick wound up and launched a haymaker at his jaw. Everything went white as stars exploded in Theron's vision. When the men holding him up let go, he dropped to the floor, semi-conscious. He tried to keep from blacking out as someone grabbed his ankles and dragged him face down to the door, his cheeks scraping roughly across the dirty, sticky floor. His head was still spinning as they lifted him up into the air, rocked him back and forth a few times to gather momentum, then tossed him out onto the street. He landed awkwardly on his shoulder, re-aggravating the injury he'd sustained during his last job on Nar Shaddaa. Somehow, he rolled onto his side, just in time to receive a hard kick from Presick right in the ribs. The soldier leaned over and spit on him. Then, laughing, he and his friends turned and headed back into the bar. Theron lay curled up in the fetal position on the street, evaluating his injuries. The inside of his lip was cut where Presick's punch had mashed it against his teeth, filling his mouth with blood. As he spit it out, he could feel a gap with his tongue where one of his teeth had been knocked out. The side of his face that had scraped along the floor was raw and stinging, and a sharp pain every time he inhaled was probably a sign of a cracked rib. Could have been worse, he thought, slowing his breathing and running through some basic mental exercise to help him deal with the worst of the pain. They could have curb-stomped me right into the nearest med center. Or the morgue. After a few minutes, Theron gingerly got to his feet and made his way slowly down the street toward the room he shared with Nosteral, careful to keep up a lurching, drunken gait in case anyone was watching him. Are you sure you're up for this, Theron? I'm fine, Theron said, trying not to wince as he strapped on the backpack carrying the burned-out cipher core and all his other supplies. Three days had passed since he'd been pummeled at the bar. His face was still bruised, and his ribs and shoulder were still tender, but the injuries weren't worth delaying the mission over. He was wearing a black bodysuit and a balaclava to conceal his face. Nostaral's outfit was more elaborate, a loose-fitting black robe with a heavy hood 
and a fabric mask to obscure his alien features. Theron made one last run through his mental checklist, making sure everything had been taken care of. You'd better get going, Theron told his Jedi companion once he had finished his final cross-check. Give me thirty minutes to get in position before you kill the lights, and another ninety before you tip off the Empire. That should give me plenty of time to switch the cipher course and get the explosives ready before they sound the alarm. Master Nostaral nodded. I'll be waiting for you at the rendezvous site when you're done inside the ODCC. Just before Theron slipped out the door, Nostaral added, May the Force be with you. Zyost's icy, unrelenting wind buffeted Theron's body as he huddled on the roof's edge of the building across the street from the Orbital Defense Command Center. He had on his night goggles and had already anchored the tripod of his grappling gun securely. He'd even carefully selected his target, a spot just below the surveillance cams mounted on the side of the windowless ODCC building. Now he was just waiting for Nostaral to do his part. The citywide blackout would temporarily disable the surveillance camps, but it would only take a few seconds for the auxiliary generators to ramp up and get them working again. Theron would have to act fast if he didn't want to be seen breaking in. His adrenaline was pumping, his mind focused and alert, his muscles poised to spring into action. But he couldn't do anything until Nostaral knocked out the power. This is why I like to work alone, he thought crouching lower to the rooftop as another blast of wind whipped across the surface. He trusted the Jedi, and his role in the mission was simple enough. But in the back of his mind, he couldn't help but wonder if his partner was up to the task. Guess I'll know in a few minutes. Either the lights go out and the mission is a go, or I lose my fingers to a serious case of frostbite. Unlike Republic worlds, where electricity was supplied by private companies, Zyost's main power station was a government-controlled facility under military supervision. To defend it against orbital strikes, it had been built into a reinforced bunker 20 meters below the surface of the planet. The only entrance was a heavily defended turbolift, making it virtually impossible for someone to get inside without being seen. Fortunately, Master Nostaral didn't have to get into the main station to wreak havoc with Zyost's power supply. The electricity generated in the heavily defended facility had to be dispersed across the entire city through a network of substations and transformers, which divided and subdivided to feed the millions of users plugged into the electrical grid. And though the network was designed with redundancies to reroute power in the event of damaged lines and substations, it was a logistical impossibility to fully guaranteed uninterrupted service. And though the network was designed with redundancies to reroute power in the event of damaged lines or substations, it was a logistical impossibility to fully guarantee uninterrupted service. That was why places like the ODCC had their own emergency generators. Vin had provided them with blueprints for the electrical grid allowing them to identify the three key junction points that needed to be taken out to kill the power supply for their target. By planting explosives at each location and detonating them simultaneously, they could cause a massive blackout that would take hours to restore. The first two locations were both small auxiliary substations. Neither one was guarded, and it was a simple matter for the Jedi to plant the detonite charges and set the timers. The third location, however was one of the city's five primary substations. It would have been prohibitively expensive for the Empire to replicate the near-impregnable defenses of the main power station at each of the substations, but it did take some precautions. The small building was surrounded by a three-meter-high electrified chain-link fence. There were half a dozen guards stationed at the facility. Every twenty minutes, they took turns circling the perimeter in pairs, while the others sat inside the substation's tiny break room playing sabacc and trying to stay warm. Nostaral could have easily used his lightsaber to slice through the fence and dispatched all six of the soldiers before they could call for help, but the iconic weapon of the Jedi left distinctive marks on both flesh and steel. Leaving behind evidence pointing to a Jedi's involvement would blow apart the cover story that this was the work of a local anti-imperial resistance group. Instead, he hid in the shadows and waited for the two guards on patrol to pass, then raced up to the fence. 
Using a pair of insulated wire cutters, he snipped open a hole just large enough for him to slip through without touching the deadly fence. Then he raced up to the side of the building. Heading in the same clockwise direction as the patrolling guards, he circled the perimeter until he reached the building's only entrance. Instead of the modern automatic security doors that slid open with the touch of a button, the building was fitted with an archaic metal plate that swung open on its hinges when the handle was turned. Pressing himself against the side of the door, the Jedi carefully turned the handle and eased it open a few centimeters. Light spilled out into the dark night, along with the conversation and laughter of the guards in the break room just on the other side. Crouching down, he rolled a small canister along the ground and into the room before pulling the door shut. Calling on the force, he warped, twisted, and snapped the handle off. A second later, there were cries of alarm from inside as black, noxious smoke billowed out from the imperfectly sealed edges of the door. He heard running feet, followed by the sound of someone frantically struggling with the door's handle on the other side, unaware it had been disabled. There was a loud bang as someone threw their body at the door. Then a woman shouted, Stand clear! Three blaster bolts pierced the door in rapid succession, ripping finger-sized holes in the steel. Then there was a loud thump as someone kicked at the door, once again to no avail. By the time the two guards on patrol had heard the commotion, still playing the part of an anti-imperial terrorist, Nostaral crouched on one knee, drew his blaster, and shot the first one as he came racing around the corner, killing him instantly. As he always did, the Jedi felt a twinge of sorrow at taking another's life. But decades of war against a brutal and relentless foe had forced Nostaral, like so many others in the Order, to come to grips with the moral ambiguity of killing an enemy in the pursuit of a peace that would save the lives of trillions. The partner of the guard whom Nostaral shot managed to duck back behind the cover of the building's edge. Nostaral stood up and reached out with the force, using it to pick the surviving soldier up and pull her out into the open. She flew several meters through the air before landing on the exposed ground. Nostaral shot her before she could even get to her feet. Turning back to the door, he placed a thin strip of detonite along the edge, retreated to a safe distance, then set it off. The blast blew the damaged door open. It took several seconds for the poison gas from the detonator to clear the room and reveal the bodies of the four guards just inside the door. Nostaral was reminded of the value of the Jedi teachings. Had the soldiers stayed calm during his attack, they could have retreated into the small control room in the back of the building to escape the smoke. But fear had clouded their minds, and in their panic they had congregated around the only exit to the outside world, dooming themselves. The Jedi stepped over the fallen soldiers and crossed the room to the door at the rear. It was locked, but another strip of detonite gave him access to the control room beyond. He set the explosives, sinking the timer to go off in three minutes, the exact same time as the charges at the other two locations. Then he turned and left the building, slipped through the hole he'd cut in the perimeter fence, and headed toward the rendezvous point, where Theron would meet up with him later. Theron didn't hear the explosions from the substations, but he knew exactly when they happened. Everything in an area of six square blocks went instantly and completely dark. A second later, his night vision goggles adjusted to the lack of illumination, allowing him to see everything through a hazy green filter. He fired his grappling gun, the three-pronged harpoon embedding itself in the permacrete side of the Orbital Defense Command Center, five meters below the height of the roof Theron was perched on. He clipped a sliding pulley and handle onto the line and leapt off the edge, letting gravity pull him down the zip line. It took only a few seconds until he reached the end of the line. Clamping down on the pulley, he slowed his descent to keep from smashing into the side of the ODCC. He made sure the pulley was latched onto the end of the grappling hook protruding from the wall, then released the line. The thin wire shot away from him, retracted at an incredible speed by the recoiling springs and the grappling gun anchored on the roof across the street. A second later, the auxiliary generators kicked in, and the ODCC emergency lights illuminated the night. 
hear the soft whir of the surveillance cams sticking out from the side of the building a few meters above him as they resumed their automated pan and scan search of the surrounding area. But the cams weren't positioned to look straight down. He was safe. Forced to dangle by one hand from the grappling hook's pulley, he used his free arm to pull out a small tube of inert plasma gel. Squeezing the tube, he covered a one-meter by one-meter square on the side of the building with the pasty white substance. Then he tucked the half-empty tube back into his belt and brought out a small rod tipped with a pair of electrical prongs. He waited a few seconds for the gel to set, then pressed the prongs into the gel on the wall and pulled the trigger. The rod hummed as it discharged a powerful current, catalyzing the inert plasma suspended in the paste. Theron turned his head to the side and closed his eyes as the substance began to smolder and spark. When he opened his eyes a few seconds later, the gel had burned a hole clean through the permacrete wall. Still hanging from the grappling hook, Theron hauled himself up so he could swing his legs through the hole before letting go. The effort aggravated his injured left shoulder, but it was more annoyance than inconvenience. He found himself in an empty office on the third floor of the ODCC. Theron slung the backpack off his shoulder and onto the ground. The soft glow of the building's emergency lights made his night goggles unnecessary, so he stashed them in the pack, then peeled off the outer layer of his clothes. Underneath the black bodysuit, he wore an exact replica of an emergency response team's captain's uniform, complete with an encoded ID badge, like the one he'd scanned in the bar. From inside the backpack, he pulled out a heavy assault rifle. More firepower than he probably needed, but it would fit the story of a militant terrorist group. He stuffed the discarded outer clothes into the pack before hoisting it up onto his back again. From the architectural diagrams Vin had provided, he knew he was on the same floor as the minister's office, though he was on the opposite side of the facility. Unfortunately, his access point had been limited by the surrounding buildings there weren't any structures tall enough on the other side of the ODCC for him to get high enough to use the zipline. With the facility still in lockdown, however, he didn't have to worry about any guards patrolling the area. The door leading from the office and out into the hall was locked. He could tell by the blinking red light above the small access panel on the side. As he approached, the panel began to blink yellow as the security system automatically scanned his badge. He leaned forward, bringing his eyes only a few centimeters away from the panel to let it scan the contact lenses he'd slipped in before the mission. The lenses didn't affect his vision, but they mimicked the retinal pattern of Captain Presick. The light above the panel switched from yellow to green, and the door slid open. Theron poked his head into the hall, looking both left and right, but seeing no one. He stepped into the hall and moved quickly to the door at the far end that would lead him into the adjacent wing. Once again, he let the system read his badge and scan his eyes, and the door's status changed from red to yellow to green before it slid open. On the other side were two guards sitting casually on the floor of the hall, idly passing the time as they waited for the lockdown to end. They glanced up in surprise as Theron stepped through the door. Seeing his captain's uniform, their first instinct was to scramble to their feet and stand at attention. But even though Theron was dressed like an officer there were too many other things that didn't add up. The lockdown was only a few minutes old. It was too soon for the emergency response team to already be on the third floor. Plus, he should have been coming from the other direction, working his way up from the main floor and the front entrance. Finally, Imperial officers carried blasters, not backpacks and assault rifles. All of this passed through their heads in a fraction of a second, and though they were already reaching for their weapons as they started to stand... The momentary delay gave Theron time to mow them down. As he stood over the bodies of the two soldiers, Theron knew he'd have to be more cautious from this point forward. At some point, this pair would be expected to check in, and when they didn't, the other guards would know something was wrong. It was also possible someone had heard the sound of the shots, and though the lockdown kept them from investigating, they'd be alert and on guard from this point on. He wasn't going to come through any more doors to find his enemies lounging on the floor. The corridor he was in took a 90-degree turn to his right before coming up against another sealed door. 
This time, Theron was more careful, crouching low to the side of the door as he slipped his backpack off and set his assault rifle on the floor beside him. He dug around until he found what he wanted, a pair of detonators, then leaned in and let the scanner read his retinal signature. As the door slid open, Theron pressed himself against the wall, taking cover behind the edge of the door jamb. He poked his head out just enough to see down the corridor, then pulled it back as the waiting guards unleashed a volley of blaster bolts in his direction. There were three this time, strategically spread out at various points along the hall. Theron pressed the small button on the first detonator to prime it, then tossed it down the corridor with a flick of his wrist, careful to keep from exposing himself to the enemy's line of fire. Even before the inevitable explosion, he was already priming the second detonator. The first blast went off, and Theron made his move. He wanted to get this one all the way down to the far end of the hall, so he had to lean out to get enough leverage for the throw, momentarily leaving himself open. As he did so, he saw one of the guards lying on the floor, a casualty of the first blast. The other two had been far enough down the hall to survive, but the explosion had left them distracted and disoriented and neither one was able to get off a clean shot in the brief second Theron was exposed. In the aftermath of the second detonator's explosion, Theron scooped up his assault rifle and peeked around the edge of the door jam. Another soldier was down, and the third was reeling from the explosions. He fired at Theron, but his shots flew high and wide. Theron remained calm as he took careful aim and dropped his foe with a short burst. He threw the backpack on once more, and continued down the hall, counting the doors on his left. When he reached the third one, he stopped and went through the necessary routine to unlock it. He stepped into the minister's office, then sealed the door behind him, just in case. The office was large, ten meters by ten in Theron's estimation. A number of comfortable-looking chairs were arranged around a small, circular meeting table near the front. In the back was a massive desk made of dark brown wood, Intricate designs had been carved into the front and sides, and the heavy legs were sculpted into ornate, sweeping curves. Theron had expected to find propaganda posters or a self-portrait of the minister, but the walls were surprisingly empty. According to Vin's blueprints, the minister's private communications room was through an exit in the back, the most logical place to store the black cipher. But as Theron stared at the massive Durasteel door at the rear of the office... He realized Vin's blueprints hadn't shown everything. He approached the security panel of the locked door and quickly realized a simple badge and retinal scan were not going to get him in this time. There was a numbered keypad beside the door, and Theron guessed only the minister himself knew the access code. Theron quickly reviewed his options. He still had some plasma gel left, but not enough to burn through the heavy steel door. He had his slicing equipment... He could probably crack the code, but that would take time he didn't have. And even if he managed to get lucky and crack the code quickly, it was possible the door wouldn't even open until the lockdown was over. This is going to be a problem, Theron muttered. Master Nostoral didn't need a chrono to know it was time to send the anonymous tip. Being attuned to the Force made his internal clock as accurate as any manufactured timepiece. He punched a button on the holocom belted to his waist to scramble the signal, which would distort the image and make it harder to trace. Then he sent a transmission to the Imperial Garrison next to the Orbital Defense Command Center. Because of the scrambler, when they answered, the signal was a mess of static snow, flickering low-res images and bad audio. Imperial Garrison 343... He could just barely make out a woman's voice over the crackles and hiss. Check your hollow settings. We're getting strong interference. The minister's life is in danger. They're setting explosives in his office. Who are you? The voice on the other end demanded sharply. How did you get this frequency? I'm a friend of the Empire. If you hurry, you can stop them. Abruptly, he ended the call. Even if the woman on the other end suspected the call was a hoax, they couldn't afford to ignore it. Not with the citywide blackout. Your friends are on their way, Theron. Nosteral whispered to himself. I hope you are ready for them. 
Theron raced down the hall outside Minister Davidge's office, heading for the stairwell, with the assault rifle clutched in one hand and the pack with the damaged cipher core inside still strapped to his back. The pack was much lighter now that he'd finished planting the explosives and setting the timer in Minister Davidge's office, but he was behind schedule. Thanks to Nostaral's anonymous tip, it wouldn't be long before the emergency response team converged on the third floor to try to catch the would-be assassins in the act. If everything had gone according to plan, he would already have the cipher core, and all he'd have to do was get far enough away from the office to be clear of the blast radius. When the team showed up, the detonite would go off accidentally, and he'd slip away in the ensuing chaos. Unfortunately, the Durasteel security door between him and the comm room had thrown a kink into his plans. Theron had stared at it for several minutes, his mind desperately trying to figure out a solution. He couldn't open it, and he couldn't go through it. But, he realized, he could still go around it. The walls of the minister's communications room were probably reinforced with the same Durasteel as the door, but the ceiling would have to be made from more conventional building materials to allow the minister to transmit and receive signals from the room. Theron didn't have enough plasma gel left to eat through the Durasteel, but if he got into the office directly above the room, he could make a hole in the floor and drop down. As he raced toward the stairwell, he saw the status light shift from red to yellow, even though he was still too far away from the scanner to read his badge. By the time it switched to green, he had realized what was happening, and as the door slid open, he dropped to the ground in a tumbling roll, bracing himself for the collision with the man on the other side. The Imperial soldier was bent over and leaning forward so the retinal scanner could confirm his identity. The other five members of his team huddled close behind him, alert and ready. Two were watching the stairs above and below, guarding against an enemy ambush. The other three had their weapons trained on the hall, ready to fire on any available target the instant the door opened. But their weapons and their focus were at chest height. They hadn't expected someone to come rolling in like a human wrecking ball. In the split second before their collision, Theron recognized the man on the other side of the door. His old friend, Captain Presick. Theron plowed into his knees, sending them both crashing to the ground. In the tight confines of the stairwell, the momentum of their flailing bodies had a domino effect on the other guards, and the entire team was sent sprawling. The one farthest back from the door tumbled down the stairwell, while the others were knocked from their feet in a pile of thrashing limbs. Theron's impact jammed his sore shoulder, and the pain made him lose his grip on his assault rifle. Despite this, he was still the first to regain his feet. Presick's eyes opened wide in recognition as he saw who was responsible for the carnage. As Presick reached for the pistol on his hip, Theron delivered a hard kick to his jaw, stunning him. Then he scooped up his assault rifle from the ground and sprang backward into the hall. One of the other soldiers had managed to collect himself enough to fire off a wild shot with his own weapon. The bolt whizzed by Theron's ear as he slapped at the panel, shutting the door with a sharp whoosh. He heard the ricochet of a second shot deflect off the door panel as he turned and sprinted back toward the minister's office. He managed to duck inside just as the stairwell door opened again and a barrage of bolts whisked down the corridor. Theron slung the backpack off his shoulders so it wouldn't impede his movement. Staying low to the floor, he poked his head around the corner to return fire. Knowing he'd present too tempting a target if he took the time to aim, he squeezed off a burst of wild shots, hoping to get lucky. He didn't hear any cries of pain, but he also didn't hear the sound of feet charging down the hall toward him. He may not have hit his target, but at least he'd made them think twice about coming after him. Unfortunately, they had him pinned down, and they knew it. The hallway was filled with a steady barrage of blaster bolts, suppressing fire to keep Theron from getting off a return shot. He reached into the backpack and pulled out a small reflective mirror. Carefully, he angled it so he could see down the hall without exposing himself to the endless rain of enemy shots. What he saw didn't fill him with encouragement. Captain Presick was back on his feet and he and the other members of his team were crouched low and advancing down the hall, pressing themselves up against opposite walls of the corridor. The others were positioned several meters behind them, weapons trained on the office door, ready to unleash with their assault rifles if Theron exposed itself again. 
Theron realized his situation was hopeless. If he still had his detonators, he might be able to toss one down the hall. Even though leaning around the corner to make the throw would be the last thing he ever did, at least he'd take a few of the Imperial scum with him. Actually, Theron realized, I can take them all with me. He scrambled over to the explosives by the minister's desk, knowing he could set off the entire charge just by pulling out the wrong wire on the timer. With the amount of detonite he used, the blast would take out the entire team and reduce him to ashes and dust. He took a deep breath, readying himself for a martyr's death. He knew the men outside were getting close. In a few more seconds, it would all be over. Guess Jace and I aren't going to get to know each other better after all. The sound of a single assault rifle echoed down the hall. A second later, it was joined by screams of pain and surprise. And then the sound of several weapons firing. But to Theron's surprise, the bolts weren't ricocheting off the floor and walls around the still-open door of the minister's office. He scrambled over to the door and poked his head around the corner, his weapon ready. Two of Presick's men were down. The captain and the others had turned their attention to a figure firing at them from the shadows just beyond the door leading to the stairwell. Seizing his chance, Theron opened up with his own weapon. In a matter of seconds, the deadly crossfire had mowed the trapped Imperials down. It's me, the voice of Master Nostaral called out, careful not to use any names. Are you hurt? I'm okay, Theron called back, stepping out into the hall. A second later, the Jedi emerged from the darkness of the stairwell. In the glow of the emergency lights, Theron could see that he was still wearing his disguise, his features carefully hidden by his robe and hood. But over the fabric that concealed his face, he wore a monocle-like lens. And pinned to the front of his robe was an ID badge identical to the one on Theron's uniform. Seal that door, Theron said. The Keldor leaned in close enough for the retinal scanner to read the hollow image off his monocle, then hit the button to close the door when the status light turned green. Any reason you didn't tell me you made copies of the badge and retinal image for yourself? You seem to think the mission would be easier if you went alone. I didn't see the point in arguing. So you were planning to show up the whole time? What, did the Force give you a vision that I was going to need some help? It doesn't work that way, the Keldor said, missing the fact that Theron was joking. When you were late arriving at the rendezvous point, I feared something had gone wrong. Fortunately, you left the grappling gun set up on the building across the street. I was able to use it to follow your path and get inside. Well, thanks. I owe you one. The Jedi do not keep track of such things, he replied, and Theron wondered if the Keldor was trying to be funny. It won't be long before they send another emergency response team to this floor. We need to get out of here. One problem... Follow me. He led the Jedi into the minister's office and showed him the Durasteel door. So, any chance you can use the Force to just rip that thing open for me? Some of the great masters of legend might have had that kind of power, but such a feat is beyond me. I was afraid you'd say that. Okay, new plan. I need to get to the fourth floor. But like you said, there could be another emergency response team coming up the stairwell at any moment. I know that Durasteel door's too thick for your lightsaber to cut through it, but I'll bet you can slice a hole in the ceiling of this office for me to crawl through, right? I could, but it would leave a very distinctive mark. Don't worry about that. When that detonite blows, all that's going to be left of this office are splinters and ash. The Jedi nodded. He pulled out the hilt of his lightsaber and ignited the blade. Reaching up, he slowly carved a perfect circle in the ceiling ahead of him. Tiles, plaster, and a shower of insulation came tumbling down. Imperial reinforcements are coming. I can sense them. How close? Close. I'll hold them off to buy you some time. Theron nodded and scooped his backpack off the floor, tossing it up and through the hole in the ceiling. Then he jumped up, his fingers wrapping around the lip as he pulled himself up and into the fourth floor office above them grunting with the effort and the burst of pain that flared up in his injured shoulder. The minister's office was larger than the one he was now standing in. 
After slinging his backpack over his good shoulder, he had to go out to the hall and into the office next door before he was standing above the communications room. He pulled out the igniter rod and the tube of plasma gel, using the last of it to melt a hole in the ceiling as he heard the sound of blaster fire rising up from the floor below. Knowing Nostaral wouldn't be able to keep the Imperial reinforcements at bay for long, he dropped down into the communications room. The black cipher was sitting on the communications console in the center of the room. Extracting the core without triggering the self-destruct sequence was a delicate process. One wrong move, and the entire mission became nothing but a waste of time and resources. Fortunately, Theron had practiced the procedure hundreds of times on the damaged ciphers the Republic had recovered. When he started, it had taken him almost ten minutes. But with each attempt, he got faster and faster, cutting his time to under a minute. No need to try for a personal record, he reminded himself as his nimble fingers worked their magic. Ninety seconds later, the prize was his. He wrapped it in a protective layer of microweave fabric and pulled out a hard-sided protective case from his backpack. He opened it up and removed the damaged core, slapping it into the cipher. Then he placed the working core into the protective case, snapped it shut, and stuffed it in his backpack. It's time to go, Nostaral's voice came from above him. Looking up, he saw the Jedi peering down at him through the hole in the communications room ceiling. Theron jumped up and grabbed Nostaral's offered hand, allowing the Jedi to help haul him up so he didn't have to put any further strain on his aching shoulder. The wounded joint had gone from sore to outright painful, but Theron pushed all thoughts of it aside. What happened to the reinforcements? I was unable to keep them from advancing into the room. Once they were in close quarters, I had no choice but to use my lightsaber. It's okay, Theron told him. The blast will cover up the evidence. The timer's ticking. We need to get clear. How much time do we have? Theron checked his chronometer. Sixty seconds. Run! Theron led the way, his mind tracing the optimal escape route from his memory of the ODCC's architectural diagrams. It took them ten seconds to reach the fourth floor stairwell and use the badge retinal scan combo to open the door. Ten more to head up two flights to the sixth floor and over to the emergency roof access. Ten more to race to the far side of the roof. There, Theron realized one of them wasn't going to make it. I packed an emergency chute into my backpack, he said, struggling to take it off so he could hand it to Nostaral. Take a running leap off the edge and pull this cord to deploy. Don't be foolish. The force will protect me. And with that, he disappeared over the edge. Theron blinked in surprise, then scrambled to get the backpack securely on again. His chrono beeped, warning him he only had five seconds until detonation. He took three running steps toward the edge and jumped, pulling the cord to deploy the chute as the building erupted behind him. A wave of hot air propelled from the blast seized his parachute, launching him high in the air and sending him spinning and tumbling out of control. The guide wires tangled together, partially collapsing the chute. Instead of floating gently to the ground, he began to pick up speed, his legs and arms flailing as he tried to control his rapid descent. Ten meters above the ground, the wires suddenly untangled, and the fabric canopy unfurled wide over him. It slowed his fall, but Theron was still coming in hard. He braced his legs together and flexed his knees as he hit the ground, absorbing the crushing landing with the big muscles of his lower body and core, while simultaneously trying to roll with the impact. His teeth slammed together, and he felt a sharp pain shooting through his ankles and all the way up to the crown of his head as his body crumpled from the force of the landing. The roll wasn't much better as it came down on his already damaged shoulder, causing his arm to pop out of the socket. He would have cried out in pain if all the wind hadn't been knocked from his body, leaving him gasping for breath. He lay there for a few seconds, amazed that he was alive. He forced himself to his feet, just as Nostaral emerged from the darkness of the night to check on him. Seeing that the Jedi was limping badly after his six-story fall gave him a small bit of satisfaction. Guess we both had a rougher landing than expected, Theron said, shouting to be heard above the wailing sirens that now filled the night.
Let me help you, Nostaral said, noticing Theron's left arm dangling uselessly at his side. Theron nodded, then braced himself as the Jedi took hold of his arm by the wrist and elbow. With a quick twist and pull, he popped the shoulder back into the joint. Theron let out a loud scream. Fortunately, the wailing sirens would drown out the sound so that it wouldn't give away their position to any nearby Imperials. Emergency crews are responding to the blast. We need to get out of here. Can you walk? Theron nodded, and the two men limped away into the shadows, leaning on each other for support. Talk about a cosmic crab dinner. That was a Star Wars buffet. Part 6 just dissed out all the juicy details we've been hungry for. We're now on a journey that's going to be playing on repeat in my mind. Seriously, I was as anxious as a Tuscan Raider on a speeder bike, hanging on to every word. Can you believe we're only at the story's midpoint? But hey, before we drift further into space, it's time for our signature segment, the quote of this episode. And this quote comes to us straight from George Lucas himself. He said, everyone has talent. It's just a matter of moving around until you discover what it is. So let's break it down and see how we can apply this quote to our lives. First things first, believe in yourself. Know that you are all born with unique abilities. It's like having a superpower you just haven't discovered yet. And the key is to try new things and explore different areas. Join a club, take up a hobby, or volunteer for activities that pique your interest. It's like embarking on a grand quest, searching for clues about your talent. You might be surprised at what you find along the way. Remember, don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone. Break those barriers. Try activities that you've never considered before. Maybe you've got a knack for painting, a hidden talent for a musical instrument, or a natural gift for coding. How will you know if you don't give it a shot? Your talents are waiting to be discovered. You got this. And that's all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed part six of Annihilation, and I hope you will join me for part seven in a few days. Until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic Annihilation was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.